Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. Harlem, 1946. One of the most celebrated young black writers of a generation, 
a Malayan German-American psychiatrist, and a prominent pastor descended to the basement of St. Philip's Episcopal Church. I recently spoke with Gabriel Mendez, assistant professor of ethnic studies and urban studies at the University of California, San Diego, about his new book, Under the Strain of Color, Harlem's Lafargue Clinic, and the Promise of an Anti-Racist Psychiatry, published in 2015 by Cornell University Press. Mendez follows this unlikely set of actors through their respective careers and the establishment of the Lafargue Clinic, perhaps the first institution of its kind, aimed at accounting for the psychiatric ramifications of racial oppression and redressing the lack of access to mental health care faced by Harlem's black community. The clinic advocated for a then-radical social psychiatry that took racial and economic oppression seriously, a vision born of the aforementioned author Richard Wright's interaction with the Communist Party and Chicago School Sociology, mixed with psychiatrist Frederick Wortham's idiosyncratic approach to psychoanalysis. Establishing accessible, affordable therapy and psychiatric court testimony for the population of Harlem was a grassroots effort that provided hitherto inaccessible services. Yet it was overlooked by, by state measures for community mental health in the 1950s and eventually wound down, in itself a parable for contemporary efforts to address racialized health disparities, especially regarding mental health. I enjoyed talking with Gabriel about his own intellectual trajectory and the very rich literatures and material drawn on by the book. This is one for scholars of the politics of health, African-American and urban studies, 20th century literature, for its focus on right as much as its reevaluation of Wortham, who's typically painted as reactionary, and especially those interested in the troubled legacy of American psychiatry. Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I'm here today speaking with Gabriel Mendez, Assistant Professor of Ethnic Studies at UC San Diego, about his new book, Under the Strain of Color, Harlem's Lafargue Clinic and the Promise of an Anti-Racist Psychiatry. Gabriel, welcome to New Books in Medicine. Thank you. I'm really excited to uh, be in conversation with you. Thank you. So the way we like to start things on the New Books Network is by having each of our authors give us a sense of their own intellectual trajectory, uh, sure. how they came into the field, and how they uh, came to write the work at hand. So I would love if you could chart your uh, terrain for us, as it were. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I went uh, to graduate school at Brown University in the Department of American Civilization. Uh, they still had the name American Civilization at the time that I attended. They've since uh, subsequently changed it to American Studies. But in a lot of ways, uh, as, as many people know, the title American Civilization was a kind of um, uh, it was birthed and, uh, and, and elaborated in the Cold War era to enunciate the uh, the the exceptional qualities of, of, of American society and history and culture. Um, but yeah, I, I, I attended the American Civilization Department. Prior to that, uh, I uh, attended uh, my undergraduate degree was at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, and I majored in Africana studies and religious studies. So it was a double major. And then uh, subsequently, uh, uh, a year and a half, approximately uh, two years after graduating from uh, Hobart, I went to Harvard Divinity School. So I did a religious studies, a uh, master of theological studies, which is a more of the a study of as opposed to uh, the ministerial practice of of religion. And, and it was an extraordinary experience because I, I arrived at 
Harvard Divinity School the very same year that uh, Professor Cornell West joined uh, the faculty in uh, African-American studies and over in the Divinity School. So that was an extraordinary experience. But um, at when I uh, pursued uh, the doctoral program in uh, in American studies at Brown, I always um, envisioned myself having also one foot in uh, Africana studies or African American studies or, or like we could even Afro diasporic studies broadly mm-hmm. construed. And what was great about the time that I arrived at uh, at Brown in 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 two thousand one, I was there officially 2001 to 2009. Um, But what was great about that was the Africana Studies Department did not yet have a graduate program. So the professors there were very excited to welcome um, graduate students from other programs, other other graduate programs throughout the university and really uh, allowed me to glom onto them, so to speak. And and I ended up being a teaching assistant um, in in both American studies and in uh, Africana studies. And what was really exciting about the time that I arrived there and and, and actually feeds into uh, um, how this uh, book, Under the Strain of Color, took shape um, initially as my dissertation, which I'll, I'll mention in just a minute. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was exciting was there were a batch of um, uh, scholars there who were really reckoning with the work of uh, the Martinican psychiatrist and, and anti-colonial thinker, Franz Fanon, and, well, anti-colonial fighter as well. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he, uh, he uh, abjured or abdicated his position as a French colonial psychiatrist and, and joined the Algerian Revolution. So, <laughs> yes, he, uh, he, he, was, he was both, uh, many know he was both a, 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 a theorist, thinker, and, a, um, and, and, a, and, a, uh, and an activist. So, um, but what, what, what the questions they were, uh, the scholars there were reckoning with, um, often, um, uh, often bore down to the question of the lived experience of racialization and particularly what it meant to live black in an anti-black society. And so, um, one of the main texts that I read and reread with with uh, with figures like uh, Lewis R. Gordon, the philosopher Lewis Gordon, and and the uh, sociologist uh, Paget Henry at at uh, Brown was we read um, we read Black Skin White Mass very closely, both um, both in terms of its. Um, uh, both in terms of its connections and and origins in a set of questions in psychoanalysis, but also in phenomenology and other philosophical concerns. So both the kind of um, uh, nuts and bolts psycho, psychoanalytic uh, questions, as well as the uh, question of method of 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 the phenomenology of of um, in the book, it's translated as. Uh, into English as the fact of blackness, but it's 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 at more aptly uh, the lived experience of the black. And so, a set of questions emerged for me for me um, that uh, that, it, that took shape um, in relation to what I was learning in American studies as well. And that main question was, 
um, the relationship between uh, normality and pathology as uh, constructed and enacted in the human sciences and as it intersects with the changing meanings of race. And so uh, while I, I entered that line of inquiry through the more theoretically sophisticated dimensions of, 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 of working through Fanon, I always um, uh, pick up those theoretical questions and see how um, how they may translate or 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 be I, uh, identified in a set of historical uh, circumstances or questions, and so um, at the very same moment that I was engaging sort of a phenomenon, well, phenom studies, so to speak, I was also um, engaging um, a real what I like to call a kind of a boomlet in American historiography on. Uh, on the human sciences at the level of at the level of intellectual history, but also policy history and theoretical questions, but uh, just a, a broad ranging uh, uh, emergent set of texts. I'm thinking of Alice O'Connor's Poverty Knowledge, Ellen Herman's Romance of American Psychology, and probably for me the most important of that that body of texts uh, was Daryl Michael Scott's Contempt and Pity. The it's the the um, it's the the image of the damaged black psyche in American policy. That's the subtitle, or or some some iteration of that. And so I I had in on one side a real um, thoroughgoing uh, theoretical um, uh, body of work. I was I was I was reeling from, so to speak, but also. Um, very excited to engage in um, tracing the genealogies of the human sciences and how they how they intersected with questions of race and racialization. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to put a kind of uh, um, uh, uh, a punctuation on on this is that my uh, when I um, proposed my dissertation, it was a really um, ambitious, wide-ranging study I, I called "Living the Dilemma: Lim- Living the Dilemma: African American Encounters with the Human Sciences in Postwar America," which is wow. just uh, a very capacious topic. And I, I always say to my uh, uh, gra- to graduate students, and I, I, I have no idea how my dissertation committee accepted that because it's, it was really <laughs> it was really a multi-volume work uh, in, in in the offing and. And so um, the first, my um, uh, the way, if would you allow me to just talk a little bit about that dissertation oh, topic? And yeah. it, um, I, I, each chapter was supposed to be a, a a four a four or five depending on four or five chapter dissertation, very much mapped along um a life cycle and 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 in many ways i took a cue from the autobiography of malcolm x to look at the sites in which um uh a young african american in this case man uh encounters 
in both discourses and institutions, the knowledge that's produced about him. And so mm-hmm. I, I was, I, I, I imagined a, a, a project that looked like this social work, a chapter on social work, right? The family, the initial site of which um, the human sciences are, are brought to bear on, on everyday people. So social work and then um, education and, and schools, public schools, and then juvenile delinquency, uh, and then um, uh, 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 a psychiatric clinic, because there's this famous moment in Autobiography of Malcolm X where, where, uh, where Malcolm X, uh, young, well, he's still Malcolm Little, uh, feigns madness. He fakes madness in order to get out of service in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's where he famously says, well, he's frantic to join the Japanese army. And they're like, whoa, 4F. <laughs> so anyway, um, the last was to be prisons. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was I, I initially did a little foray into some of those other possible chapters. But then um, uh, by sheer accident of timing, uh, I was slated to teach a course called African-American Autobiography as a as an advanced graduate student at brown and i was slated to teach it in spring and got notified just about a month before the start of the fall semester that hey we need this course now (laughs) and so i began to do my homework and this is the very same time where i was i formulated the dissertation topic i was doing my um syllabus construction and knowing that i was working on going to work with uh, uh richard wright um, who, as you know, um, is a co-founder of the Lafarge Clinic. That's the subject of of Under the Strain of Color. Um, I'm doing all this um, uh, background on Wright and in a chronology of Wright's uh, life and work. It says 1946 co-founds the Lafarge Mental Hygiene Clinic in Harlem with uh, German. Jewish German psychiatrist Dr. Frederick Wortham, and uh, like like Deus Deus ex machina, yeah, like yeah. like light bulbs and all lightning and <laughs> as you might have thunder soon uh, <laughs> come out of nowhere. And I say, and I, I I still have the the that chronology, and it says it, I wrote next to it, look up, like look <laughs> that up, like look that up. And so I did. I looked that up, and it turned out that. Um, while, you know, this was going to be just one chapter in that larger, um, ambitious dissertation project, it really, um, I went down, as I, as I say to, as I, as I would say to my dissertation advisor, Jim Campbell, I went down the, the research rabbit hole. I went down the archival rabbit hole and, and actually yielded, um, I, I yielded enough material that I, I made the case that this should be, Mm-hmm. the focus of the whole um, dissertation project and manuscript. Mm-hmm. And so, so sort of like an inversion of what you thought your approach was going to be. Absolutely. You're tracing a life through different institutions. It ends exactly. up being that in one institution, many, many different lives kind of coalesce. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a really apt description. And so I was able to locate archival materials at, at the Schomburg Center. I, uh, uh, it's an interesting story because I, 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 uh, I was able to f- locate uh, archival material from, from the clinic itself, but very, all things considered, quite limited. There were uh, approximately four um, uh, archival boxes 
of material that that the uh, physician in charge, Hilda L. Massey of of the uh, Lafarge Clinic, left and 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 dedicated to um, to the Schomburg Center. But that's not very many. And, and in fact, there are approximately f- only 40, uh, 40 patient files. Um, but there were clinic records. There was correspondence. And I was able to kind of go um, the back route. There were, uh, I, there were the archives of Richard Wright at the Beinecke Library. And also I began to think who would Wortham have corresponded with and who were his mentors. So I, 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 and for those of, uh, those in the history of medicine and psychiatry, I located, uh, in the papers of, uh, of, of, of the Dean of American Psychiatry, Adolf Meyer, uh, of Johns Hopkins. And turned out that there was a, uh, a trove of letters and correspondence and, and reports on Wortham, uh, who, I mean, you know, we'll get to shortly, I'm sure, you know, in, in depth, but, um, the real, when I said it's an interesting story, the Frederick Wortham collection at the Library of Congress was restricted and closed to me during the entire mm. dissertation research and writing process. Huh. It wasn't until uh, 2010 that I was able to uh, gain access. They opened up. Um, and I'm sure there's within the next five years, there's going to be <laughs> a bunch of new texts that, that draw in some ways on, on the Wortham papers. Mm. So, yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, one of the things that I, I, that, that is a kind of, um, a, a methodological and, and historiographic, um, quandary and question that I actually, I, I discuss with students and colleagues is, you know, um, you know, how much material is enough to, to, uh, construct a narrative, right? To reconstruct a narrative or construct whatever word you want to use. And that was always, you know, I, I, I had what, what, uh, my advisor, Jim Campbell referred to as dissertation disease initially, right? I felt like I needed to have a, a strictly source driven, um, uh, he loved it. He loved that I was rigorous about, citation and and I needed every document to correspond to a claim I made and I think that's a really proper intention and and orientation but the story doesn't strictly depend on just having you know one like uh, uh, a piece of datum to correspond that that I was able to glean from both primary and secondary sources enough to really make some claims about the significance of the Lafarge clinic and of the trajectory of its co-founders. And ultimately it's, um, it's, uh, it's impact and legacy on both questions of race in the human sciences and, and in the medical sciences and also its significance to um, the, the field of, of mental health care proper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, that's a, lot a great of overview in, uh, you. into your approach to the project. And so yeah. I'm just wondering if you could summarize briefly for us just before we dive into yeah. deeper discussion in the context of the book. So what was the Lafar Clinic? Um, how long did it run? What was sort of what's the kind of time scale and the scope yeah. we're looking at right here? Yeah. So um, the Lafargue Mental Hygiene Clinic was the first outpatient 
psychiatric clinic in, in and for the community of Harlem, New York. It opened in March of 1946 and uh, closed at the end of 1958. And it operated every Tuesday and Friday evenings out of the basement of the St. Philip's Episcopal Church in Harlem on 134th Street. And it was staffed by an all-volunteer um, uh, it was an all-volunteer staff made up of uh, a number of the co-founder Dr. Wortham's uh, students and colleagues, as well as some uh, community members in Harlem. For most cases, each therapy session, um, it was it didn't require a referral. It could be walk-in. Each session was uh, cost a quarter. Uh, Dr. Wortham actually got the nickname in the neighborhood of. Dr. Corder. He was called Dr. Corder amongst uh, folks in Harlem. And it, um, and it was free if you didn't, if you couldn't pay that quarter. And so each session was 30 minutes, an hour in some cases. And uh, it cost 50 cents for um, uh, one of the doctors to testify in court in for some, for any reason. Um, And the clinic um, is um, very much, uh, uh, emblematic of um, an attention to the need for um, extending greater uh, mental health services. And, and yet in that larger effort to extend mental health services, very little attention was given to the needs of African-Americans uh, and other marginalized communities and, 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 um, and to the poor in general. And, uh, I mean, at the very same, in the very same year that the Lafarge Clinic was, uh, was established, Congress, uh, dedicated, uh, funds to the establishment of the National Institute of Mental Health. I believe it didn't really get up and running till 1949. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty decent with dates, but I'm pretty, but I know that, that the effort was initiated uh, for the National Institute of Mental Health in 1946. And so, you know, if you look at that in terms of a, like a parallel kind of, um, you know, not to be too corny about it, but zeitgeist, um, there is a, an unprecedented attention to, um, to the, 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 the necessity for mental health services for the American citizenry. And, um, but yet that didn't trickle down Neither the actual institute at the institutional level didn't trickle down to African Americans, and the orientation of the Lafar Clinic was distinctive in terms of its mm-hmm. attention to its explicit attention to um, the experiences of anti-black racism and uh, labor or or class exploitation and subjugation. So both. In terms of both its diagnostic and uh, therapeutic orientations, so there's this, you know, there's the the the, the kind of nuts and bolts of the clinic, um, and the context is, you know, there there's a there's um, uh, unprecedented attention, but but where are uh, the needs of African Americans entering into this, and and the title of of the book under the strain of color comes from uh, an. Uh, a 1947, a 1947 Negro Digest 
article called Brown Breakdown in which um, the author, Kay Crimmins, actually poses that very question of, well, okay, this is going – and she uses the, um, the military as a, a kind of a site uh, to, to expand and elaborate to American society. Well, okay, so um, you know, the, that in the midst of World War II, many soldiers cracked under the pressure. Well, what about African-Americans who uh, experience daily onslaughts and are cracking under the strain of color? And I've always found that such a resonant image and, and, and reference. And so that then became, um, in coordination with the editors of Cornell University Press, that became the title of, of, of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. And actually, to, you know, while on the subject of some of the material and the ways in which it you know, inspires and, in a way, like, kind of theorizes uh, itself when selected mm-hmm. properly, I wanted to quote from um, one, of, uh, one of your chapters where uh, there's a page uh, that's mm-hmm. sort of a memo that Wortham pens called the objectives yeah. of the Lafargue Clinic. And I think it really does kind of address uh, all the things you just spoke to. Yeah. Uh, just to quote from that, it says, public should be acquainted with the fact that discrimination exists in psychiatry. Example, psychiatric institute does not take Negroes as patients. Individual cases cannot be understood if the above points are not recognized. Um, continues uh, mm. to mention political consciousness. Uh, defined by Dr. Wortham as knowing what's going on. And then he says, many who have the opportunity to know what's going on do not accept it. No big theories are needed, no prejudices. And in a way, I think that that kind of is very emblematic of the mission of what seems to be kind of a counter-institution, right? It's functioning uh, in the basement of a church. And, (laughs) you know, figures who would otherwise, uh, who we'll get into in a sec, you know, Mm -hmm. be really, really uh, major... Not like not marginal, but sort of major uh, movers and shakers in their respective backgrounds and fields, kind of coming together to form. Yeah, this kind of counter institution in a way. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you uh, you zeroed in on that passage, uh, that 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 memo. I mean, I uh, I I rarely in the book have these kind of big block quotes just to let your readers right. know. Like, <laughs> I try to really distill the uh, source material into a readerly uh, narrative. And so, and yet that, um, that um, fragmented list of approaches to me was so uh, resonant and evocative because it distilled the approach, the orientation in such a clear uh, way in terms of both the kind of um, the explicit connection between the um, the science and the politics of psychiatry at mid-century, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that that um, it, in order to do good psychotherapy in the community of Harlem, it had to address the and when I say politics, I really think in terms of power, right? And whenever I hear politics, I hear power. That's the word that goes right mm-hmm. next. And in terms of the kind of the distribution of power in the society. Remember, this is um, the clinic is founded um, in the midst or on the kind of tail in the midst of the second wave of the great migration of African-Americans out of the 11 states of the former Confederacy to um, uh, 
urban industrial centers, you know, thinking, of course, of the arsenal of democracy, Detroit, you know, um, of course, uh, Philadelphia, um, even out west where I am in San Diego and, 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 and very much Los Angeles, but of course, New York. And so in the midst of, of this great migration, um, African-Americans are, um, while, you know, uh, still imagining a promised land of the North, they're encountering a ghetto. You know, uh, I, 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 one of the beginning portions of chapter three of the book, which I'm, we'll get to, I just want to kind of, um, set the stage a little is that, you know, um, uh, Harlem remains both a, um, a Mecca of the black, you know, as from the Harlem Renaissance days of the, the black, the capital of black America, but it's also, in, in the words of of, uh, of 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 Claude Brown, author of Man Child in the Promised Land, it's a closet-sized ghetto, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to to disregard the social context of the you know the lived experience of of the patients before them uh, who come and sit down with them to 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 disregard right those those components of 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 the racial context the political of like like of uh was the higher type of psychiatry um uh that that um it would be a dereliction of the work of psychiatry mm-hmm. according to mm-hmm. wortham right so this this well, he there's this there's this um uh quote I'd like to share with you that in line with that, and it, and it comes from the introduction where um, I want to kind of introduce actually a little bit of the orientation and it connects to what you just posted. May, may I share that portion? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this comes in, <clears throat> in on page 16 of the introduction. It's, um, uh, it's, it's a paragraph I'd like to, uh, 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 if you bear with me, Wright and Wortham embraced psychological discourse and the science of psychiatry as tools for understanding black experiences of modern American society. Yet they resisted the general aim of the behavior, of the behavioral sciences to help the putatively abnormal to adjust to the norms of society. Instead, they sought to develop psychiatric knowledge and therapy that might aid everyday people in confronting the social order of white supremacy and capitalist exploitation. To do so, Wortham developed a distinctive version of, quote, social psychiatry, an orientation to psychiatric diagnosis and psychotherapy that incorporated the social world of the patient into the overall picture of mental health. Wortham did not coin the term social psychiatry, but in his writings and public appearances, he consistently trumpeted his particular brand of conjoining the social sciences and psychiatry as a unique advance in understanding the sources. And here we get to like etiology, right? The, The origins and sources, the sources and in the treatment of personality problems and mental disorders. If you allow me, I just want to finish this paragraph because I think it's resonant. Uh, social psychiatry was an attempt to reorient the field of mental health care toward a, quote, progressive social point of view, end of quote. And acknowledging the political nature of his efforts, Wortham explained that social psychiatry, quote, does not introduce social partisanship into psychiatry. Social psychiatry uncovers 
scientifically it's unconscious or conscious presence in every form of psychiatry that has ever existed. There is no science dealing with human beings that is completely unpolitical, end of quote. And lastly, psychiatry as practiced at mid-century was sadly on the wrong side of history, according to Wortham, becoming more reactionary and authoritarian as the great cry for democracy went out from everyday people all over the world. Social psychiatry, Wortham declared, and this is the last sentence, social psychiatry, Wortham declared, uh, quote, affirms that in the historical development of society and its use or abuse of science, periods may occur where seeming adaptation becomes maladaptation, adjustment, maladjustment, normality, a burden, vaunted, vaunted health, an insidious disease, in short, where the physician may be sicker than his patient. Hmm. And so that even, even that's from a lecture that he gave um, be, uh, in front. <laughs> that's really interesting. He gave that lecture at Columbia University at the Psychiatric Institute, which wasn't allowing African-Americans uh, 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 treatment at the time. Right. And so, yeah. And I think that's a very... That's a very proper way to introduce Wortham himself. Uh, yeah. I think that, yeah, it would, it would be good to maybe turn to his background. Sure. Just because, I mean, so you kind of, uh, you addressed this a bit in your introduction, but so he had experience working um, with Adolf Meyer at uh, Johns Hopkins, and That's he correct. was sort of always kind of on the margins of American psychiatry. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. lot of it was chalked up to personal issues and sure. sort of difficulties he had and trust issues with other physicians, or sorry, psychiatrists, going back to Germany. And so he has this fascinating trajectory, but he sort of pretty resolutely throughout is very much committed to uh, the social mission that he sees as core to psychiatry that, you know, his contemporaries have strayed from. So how would you characterize Wortham? And more importantly, even, how would you characterize how his particular brand of social psychiatry that he develops over time clashes with the mainstream of yeah, American that's a, psychiatry? That's a, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great way of, of, of um, both uh, telling his background and, uh, more specifically, um, uh, what, what, what indeed makes him this, uh, I, I, I say uh, in, in the book, uh, simulta- paradoxically and simultaneously, simultaneously prominent and marginal, which is mm-hmm. hard, to, hard, to, hard to do and hard to be, uh, both prominent and marginal at the same time. So um, Wortham uh, was born in um, uh, Nuremberg, um, Bavaria, to... Um, uh, non-religious, a non-religious middle-class Jewish family, born in uh, 1895, and um, comes of age in uh, you know Kaiser Wilhelm, like pre right pre World War One Germany. But he's got cousins. I'm, I'm going to try to condense this best, but it, but it's really significant where he is educated and who he works with, mm-hmm. because it it sets the stage for how he encounters um, American psychiatry, its orientations, and where he diverges from them. Um, and so he, um, he has cousins, um, and I love history. This is where I love his, his One of his cousins um, is Ella Winter. Ella Winter was a, uh, a communist, a radical 
uh, journalist who um, eventually marries later on in her life, Lincoln Steffens, the, the muckraking journalist. Uh, for those of the, oh, those in, 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 uh, in, in, in progressive history land, you'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll resonate with, with, with Lincoln Steffens. And those of you in, in radical and, and, uh, and Marxist history will be fascinated by the connection to uh, <laughs> Ella Winter. Anyway, so, but he, but Wortham would, um, Wortham was bilingual from a very early age, both uh, German and and English, and so he would spend he would spend summers and uh, in in uh, Britain with the winters and uh, the 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 um, uh, 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 on on his paternal paternal relatives, and he ends up choosing King's College uh, to attend for uh, his his uh, baccalaureate degree. But guess what? He enrolls like just <laughs> at the, at, at the guns of August of August, 1914 and of, of the onset of world war one. And as, uh, as, as an enemy alien, he is put in uh, an internment camp during the war, but during the war uh, he, um, he was, he was, he was, he was, I don't know if they had it then, but it was basically pre-med at King's College. And to get to the real um, uh, nuts and bolts, he he works with some other um, interned uh, medical doctors. And one happens to be a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And he becomes uh, I don't um, I don't recall the, the man's name right now. I'm sorry, but that he becomes fascinated with what uh, what what he himself, what Wortham himself uh, refers to as medical psychology um, uh, and, you know, broadly construed. And and I think it's it's in the internment camp period that he begins to see himself entering the field of psychiatry. And so he gets an M.D. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm jumping at the end of the war. Um, and for reasons I don't know because it's, there's nothing in the archival or there's nothing in the archival or secondary source material. I don't know why, but he, he does decide to go back to Germany at the end of the war, uh, as the war, uh, 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 post-war, uh, post-World War One Germany. He gets his MD at the University of Würzburg and begins postgraduate training to become a psychiatrist um, and uh, at some very prestigious institutions. And, and one of them happens to be um, with the, uh, the, the Kraepelin Institute, the Emil Kraepelin Institute. And Emil Kraepelin is still alive, active and running and directing his, uh, his, his, the, 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 the German uh, Institute for German Psychiatry. Uh, I'm, I'm not getting the exact phrasing correct, probably, but um, um, Emil Kraepelin is the singular most important German psychiatrist, if not one of the the singular important uh, psychiatrist, alongside uh, Sigmund Freud and and some. Maybe a couple of other of his of the of, of names I'm not uh, uh, referencing, but Emil Kraepelin um, is the father of modern nosology, which is classification mm-hmm. of mental disorders. He is the first to study, document, and um, and and in in some ways treat the two major psychoses of at the time they're called dementia praecox, which becomes in 1911. 
uh, kind of elaborated on by uh, Eugen Bloer, Bloiler of, of schizophrenia. So that's dementia precox and, and then manic depressive disorder, which becomes later, you know, the diagnosis of, of bipolar, of bipolar disorder. And, but one of the things about, um, uh, I'm probably speaking too long on this. I'll get, I'll get going a little further in a second. Uh, but this is really important is that Krapelin is a re reactionary, um, uh, a reactionary German nationalist who is, um, who, who, for Wortham and for me in subsequent, for those of us on who he becomes a, um, he aligns, uh, psychiatry with rear guard politics in a really, um, ugly way and unseemly marriage of, 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 of conservative reactionary politics and psychiatry. And it, and, and it, and, and, and it becomes, in my interpretation, a cautionary tale for Wortham, um, and, and, uh, and in the midst of, uh, his time with the Kraepelin Institute begins to, um, uh, kind of put out feelers for positions in the United States. And so he actually is connected, uh, by, um, a, a couple of doctors, uh, sojourning briefly in, in Germany. He gets connected with Adolf Meyer and the Phipps Institute. Uh, at Johns Hopkins and, uh, and Meyer, uh, takes him on. Meyer takes him on as a, as a, uh, as a, a, a junior, I think it was called a junior alienist. That's what they, you know, they called psychiatrists. But the, um, he comes to be in, uh, in Baltimore and here's where it becomes particularly relevant for his later work. He comes to Baltimore, which is a peculiar city. It's a segregated city. It's a Jim Crow city, but it's not in, as I, it's not in the, the, the Confederacy, right? It's a, it's, um, and, but it's a, it's a segregated city. And, and yet he, uh, Wortham, um, comes to, um, align himself with the plight of, of African American patients in need of care. And, and, and in those kind of where I've always, I, I, I tend to see Wortham as a Zelig figure encountering some of the uh, kind of stars of history. He, um, uh, becomes acquainted with H.L. Minken and Clarence Darrow and Clarence Darrow, the, the great lawyer, um, uh, br- uh, brings African American uh, clients um, who need uh, psychiatric testimony um, bring uh, brings these African American patients to a young Doctor Wortham, mm. and so from 1922 to 1927, uh, Wortham is in the the segregated uh, Baltimore, um, and then is pushed out of that position because of as the title of Chapter Two is uh, intangible difficulties. That's the description that Meyer uses in a, in a quote unquote recommendation, recommendation. letter. Let's yeah, call it yeah. a reference letter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to, but to really, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, address your question is that he, um, is at the center of, um, developments, uh, in, in, uh, in American psychiatry at Phipps and yet begins that process of, of becoming marginal, both on a personal and right, oh, a kind of a racial political 
a level of of countering the grain of of the kind of order of institutional politics and um and 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 he brings that with him to uh as he after a a, a brief foray in, back to germany in the early 1930s he becomes the first uh psychiatrist on the um the court of general sessions mm-hmm. in in new york city and that's where he enters into the field of 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 um of of forensic psychiatry and criminal psychopathology, which ultimately um, is the path that leads him to uh, encountering Richard Wright in the early 1940s. Richard Wright, the novelist, uh, wrote Native Son and then the, and, and a number of other important texts. Um, you know, what, kind of the the um, one of the signal feature, figures in in African American literature. Um, and politics, to be quite, to be quite uh, uh, um, uh, frank and, and 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 straightforward with that, and it's it's through um, Wortham's work in um, the Court of General Sessions, in forensic psychiatry, in criminal psycho- psychopathology, that he begins to formulate a version of uh, 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 of a notion of of social psychiatry, of of taking into consideration the social uh, determinants of mental health and mental disorder. And I just want to say one last thing on that, and that, that it's, it's, I, I, I always imagine this narrative in terms of convergence. So how do we get Wortham and Wright in a room in 1945, planning to open the first psychiatric clinic in Harlem? And, and it's, and it's through this, concern over both individual and collective violence rooted in um, both the social order, but also in forms of mental disorder that are also referred to as psychopathology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And another huge thing, Red, is the influence of psychoanalysis on personality analysis and focusing on culture, but culture at the expense of one's actual social situation. Absolutely. Right? And that's Absolutely. something that I think that uh, to turn to, you know, our next uh, figure, as you so gracefully signaled, that's a similar uh, trajectory to the one that Richard Wright has in kind of navigating through, um, you know, his own intellectual mm. upbringing, a lot of which uh, took place kind of informally in Chicago. Uh, yes. Sort of, you know, interacting uh like interacting sometimes with figures of the Chicago School of Sociology. Yes. So how is it that Richard Wright came to Harlem to found this clinic uh, as a kind of young thinker and novelist? Yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I, love, I love the way you pose the question, too. And I mean, um, you know, just a quick word about the structure of the book that kind of, kind of helps uh, mm-hmm. tie this together a bit is the structure of the book is, um, of Under the Strain of Color, is um, uh, an introduction um, four um, standalone topical chapters and a, and and an epilogue, um, and the first two chapters um, do exactly what I tried to talk about just now, which is which is um, uh, how do we get these two really disparate um, figures and who in their own ways are both. Uh, prominent and marginal, and I'll explain a little bit more in in Wright's case about that. But um, it, I've always thought 
about those initial chapters, the first chapter being um, uh, on Richard Wright and the psychology of race relations as, as the subtitle. Um, and then the second chapter being the chapter on Frederick Wortham intangible difficulties. The third chapter is a kind of wholesale um, kind of anatomy of the, of the Lafarge clinic, really the kind of orientation, nuts and bolts practices has some patient file discussion and, 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 and like the, it sets the context for the clinic. It's a real kind of, uh, to, to, to coin a birth of the clinic, right? Mm-hmm. The birth, the birth life and, and death of the clinic in some ways, not as much death yet, <laughs> but <laughs> the birth and life of the clinic. The fourth chapter looks at, um, the role of the Lafarge clinic and particularly Dr. Wortham in two prominent social phenomena and controversies of the day. One being, um, the uh, the public school desegregation cases that culminated in Brown v. Board of Education school desegregation ruling of the Supreme Court, and the other, the juvenile delinquency debates of the 1950s, uh, most saliently saliently distilled in Frederick Wortham's infamous or famous, <laughs> depending on your persuasion. Uh, 1954 book, Seduction of the Innocent, which I, I believe we will at least have a moment to chat about uh, subsequently. But that's just to give you quick, just a quick overview, I think would kind of help, help because it, what I wanted to do in the first two chapters on Wright and Wortham was to, in many ways, map, and I use that word not just kind of figuratively, but to map both map the intellectual biography and geography. I think the geography of both figures is very important. And to connect just to your, 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 uh, directly to your question of Chicago is, uh, Richard Wright is born in 1908 in, uh, in Mississippi, grows up in the deepest, deepest Jim Crow South. Many of, uh, of your listeners probably have read Black Boy and hopefully the second portion that most uh, many have not read is American Hunger. The whole uh, autobiography was originally titled American Hunger. But the, but the, get to the point is he's born in 1908, grows up in Jackson, and then and partially in Helena, Arkansas. I think it was Helena uh, in Arkansas. Um, migrates to Chicago, uh, to the south side of Chicago in 1927, joining that stream of 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 migrants out of out of uh the 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 old and quote unquote new south right um and you know encounters uh uh the city of chicago and it's uh it's urban anomie and both the uh the the beauties of anonymity and the terrors of of anonymity so to speak in 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 modern industrial life in chicago and uh you know as he says in and i quote he said when i arrived in chicago i had a vague yearning to write but i didn't have the tools i needed i needed something to uh you know to to orient and fasten his expression of of his own and others lives and and through a sheer oh i mean it couldn't be scripted better he he uh 
during the Great Depression, as it hits hits really hard in Chicago, uh, the onset of in the late uh, late twenty nine and into the thirties, uh, they have his he and his family have to seek uh, what was then called relief, which is you know welfare, right? And he gets a social worker. His social worker is Mary Worth, and uh, 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 ears are probably perking up now because uh, Mary Worth is married to. The great Chicago school sociologist, Dr. Lewis Wirth, who was one of the most prolific and important figures in Chicago school uh, urban sociology. Um, uh, for those, I recommend everybody who wants a quick digest of read, read his American Journal of Sociology piece called Urbanism as a Way of Life. I still teach that in my, my, uh, my urban studies classes. Uh, oh, I'm jointly appointed in Afri- uh, in ethnic studies and and urban studies and planning, but um, but through this sheer accident, um, as Wright is hungering for um, facts and social theory to un- to explain both his experience and that of his um, fellow migrants into the city of Chicago, his fellow African American migrants, he encounters a a wholesale explanatory framework of what was called urban ecology of thinking about the ways in which um, different uh, ethno racial groups interact on the landscape of the city. And um, that, uh, but, but, but not only was there an attention to um, uh, group encounter, there was an attention in the Chicago school to the psychology a lot of that's often overlooked in discussions of there was a lot of attention through um, through early kind of life history and ethnography to what um, what city life did to the psyche of the newly migrated and their children. And so um, encountering Mary Worth, encountering Lewis Worth, he found in the Chicago school um the rudiments of a, of a, of a, of a set of social theories about the effects of modernity on modern, on, on modern, on the modern psyche. And, um, at the very same moment that he's encountering the Chicago school, he attends, uh, a meeting of the John Reed club, which was the literary arm of the, uh, American communist party. And, um, in, uh, I believe it was 1932 or 1933, uh, Richard Wright joins the American Communist Party and he joins the South Side unit. They were broken into unit, well, kind of cells units. And he's part of the South Side unit, which is obviously, well, I should say obviously, but predominantly, uh, or almost all African American because of the South Side ghetto, right? And so at the same time, he's, Encountering the Chicago school, he's, he's, he's encountering, uh, radical, uh, social theory and politics through Marx and add the third to the third variable that goes into cons- shaping his intellectual, uh, orientation and, and armament. And that's, um, the American, uh, American fiction writers, uh, uh, the naturalists and realists, um, who, uh, uh, who, who, who actually oftentimes took Chicago as its site, namely Theodore Dreiser, um, and, and, and other, 
other novelists. And, and so, um, He's incorporating and assessing and taking this all in. And at the same time, he's got his own experiences of life and work. And he begins to write. He begins to write um, uh, uh, short stories and poetry. And um, it's also by the mid-1930s that he does encounter um, – psychoanalysis, but he's not fully steeped in that. And part of my case, my kind of argument in that chapter is that um, while he never fully in any way jettisons or throws away what he's learned in Chicago, it's in New York. It's in this, his, it's in his geographical movements that he comes into contact with different um, ideas, institutions that then come to the fore. Um, and, and for him, his departure from Chicago in 1937, uh, uh, that corresponds in the late 1930s to his full, deep, uh, well, at least his initial major foray into understanding psychoanalysis and and in particular and this is where the convergence with right wortham happens mm -hmm. is in the question of psychopathology right what is what are the sources of mental stress mental disorder that may lead someone to act um in in this case in 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 his interests his case um criminally of of violence of of acts of either self violence or or violence against others and and in K and and it comes to be that interest famously comes to be expressed in the monumental um uh watershed book of native son which he charts the life uh well the a brief <laughs> portion of the life of of the famous uh bigger thomas character Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and it's, it's in this moment of 1940 is when that's published. And then at the very same time that Wortham, that Wright is writing of, of, of Bigger Thomas, Wortham is writing uh, a book on, um, uh, a young Italian, uh, immigrant named Gino. Well, it's a, it's a pseudonym, um, uh, a, a young Italian immigrant named Gino who commits matricide uh, by stabbing his mother um, uh, for her, uh, you know, uh, alleged uh, promiscuity. Uh, she's a widow. Um, I, I won't get too far into that, but the point is that the, that there it's a, it's called the book is called dark legend, a study in murder. And it, um, uh, and, and, at the suggestion of Ella Winter, the Lynch, the, I mean, the, the, the whoa, bad word, <laughs> linchpin, <laughs> the linkage of uh, the linkages is the figure of Ella Winter, who I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. as the cousin of Dr. Wortham. Ella Winter knows right through radical circles, through the Communist Party circles, and suggests to Wortham, hey, why don't you send your book, Dark Legend, mm -hmm. to um, – to Richard Wright, who has become the most famous African-American author um, uh, in the country, if not the world, because of the, the native son is 
adopted by the book of the month club mm-hmm. and gets into homes. Um, because you know, if you're on the book of the month club, you, you receive the book, right. And it gets into homes that it never would have probably had it not been for the book of the month club. And so it sets into motion, um, a connection between these two who, who really, you know, it, it would be easy to say that, that Wortham was the kind of guide and mentor. And that's not wholly accurate, right? Right. Cause you know, I like the idea of, of, of Wortham as this, you know, the scientific practitioner, uh, you know, for the, for the hungry for knowledge, uh, hung, hungry for scientific knowledge and practice. Um, uh, right. But in, in, in many ways they, they had an, they had, um, an equal exchange, Wortham, mm-hmm. Wortham, and not in a kind of patronizing way, wanted more insight into, um, um, well, um, um, letters uh, 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 into fiction, but also African-American life, insight into um, uh, the experience of, of, of being uh, black in an anti-black society. Right. And I think that, yeah, you definitely get at this in the chapter on the clinic itself, but one of the major um, criticisms of the clinic that emerges from the, uh, you know, the kind of status quo of American psychiatry is that, you know, <laughs> what is a white German Jewish man yeah, in, yeah. in Harlem setting up a clinic for black patients? Like they, they sort of see it as this kind of incommensurability. There's no way yes. that a black patient would have any reason to trust this guy. That's, and he really has no business there otherwise. So with that, I want to get to the actual, you know, kind yeah. of how the mechanics of the clinic worked a bit more. Yes, so yes. it was housed in uh, St. Philip's church, I believe. In, yes. St. Uh, Philip's yeah, Episcopal on the West, uh, yes, mm-hmm. West 134th street. And, right. and, you know, the, uh, you know, of, 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 and uh, to, to, to address your question, I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, there's a, there's a third figure who's very important right. to the, to the history and the, and to the narrative. And that's the figure of, uh, Father Shelton Hale Bishop. Father Shelton Hale Bishop is the rector, pastor of St. Philip's. And he, um, at a time when there wasn't, a large degree of rapprochement or, or, or embrace between minist- the ministry or at least Christian ministry, um, let alone African American, uh, uh, churches and the field of medical psychology, uh, uh, psychiatry. Um, uh, Bishop embraces the idea of the clinic mm-hmm. and he embraces the, uh, the he 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 embraces um dr wortham's earnest investment and um is in i think um you know i don't know exactly how it exactly how it played out but 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 wortham um was vouched for by Richard Wright. I mean, no less than Richard Wright and, and another important figure, uh, Ralph Ellison. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph Ellison, uh, uh, author of Invisible Man plays a kind of a minor sh- a role in this history. Uh, he in fact, he's part of the clinic, correct? Yeah. Well, he, vol- he more, more like, um, I, I, he, uh, he was ensconced in the Harlem community at the time. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, and I saw, I remember seeing in some archival reference had introduced, um, uh, were, uh, Wright and Wortham to, uh, to, uh, Father Bishop. Mm. And, um, and, and later, just a quick, quick note, uh, later, Ellison, um, would come to write what I think is one of the most extraordinary pieces, uh, uh, essays on the Lafarge Clinic called Harlem is Nowhere, mm. uh, which is published in, well, actually, it was, um, it was, uh, acquired by, uh, a, a, a magazine called Magazine of the Year, but it was actually that magazine folded and the, the essay was actually never, uh, published until 1964 in Ellison's Shadow and Act. And just as an important footnote for those of you in Chicago, the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, is just initiated, just opened an exhibition on, um, which, which captures the, uh, and presents the collaboration between Ralph Ellison and the great African American uh, photographer and filmmaker, uh, 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 the first black staff photographer of Life magazine, Gordon Parks, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and you know it, the, there was a um, uh, there were photos um, that were conjoined and that correspond to Ralph Ellison's great uh, great essay. But one of the you know getting back to your question about you know the figure of 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 Wortham and whether or not uh, such a clinic would work being directed by this um, uh, thick, relatively thick accented Bavarian born <laughs> non-religious Jewish man who um, was over six feet tall, lanky and kind of um, uh, daunting. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like, you know, um, uh, he, he had a, he, he, he cut a kind of, Oh, you know, maybe a, Scary, uh, scary figure to some. I mean, me included. Who, 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 I, I don't mean. I, I don't mean to be flippant about. It, just or jokey. Point being, he was a. He, you know, he could be an intimidating figure, but he was a. He, um, uh, uh, he was an extremely earnest, earnest figure um, who could talk the talk. He could mm. explain that he wasn't. Uh, therefore a, what he referred to as a reformist project or to quote unquote study the Negro personality, which was, you know, in the wake of, uh, or in the midst of World War II, you know, in the midst of, uh, the great, well, you know, the, the, the big text, An American Dilemma, uh, by Gunnar Murdahl, that's on the lips and minds of a lot of, of American social scientists and policymakers is to study, you know, what makes, the Negro tick and what are uh, the kind of endemic pathologies that inhibit his, his full inclusion in the, uh, the, the, the body politic and social order. But to get to the point, um, Wortham, um, you know, was initially denied by major philanthropies, including the Marshall field foundation. There's a great episode, in uh, in chapter three that I want your readers to check out where uh, they are denied um, funding for the clinic on those, those exact reasons you po- you po- you pose to us about that they, they'll never come to him they won't trust him you know the important aspect of why I introduced into the conversation Father Shelton Hill Bishop is because the fact that the clinic 
was housed in a church in the um, where where uh, uh, um, the title of chapter three is between the sewer and the church, which comes from the original title of Ellison's essay, Harlem is Nowhere. He had, he, it's, it's, the clinic was literally to the bottom is the sewer and above is the church. And this was a unique and safe space. And there's no other, you know, not to romanticize it, but it was, it removed the stigma, I argue. Uh, you know, the, the topic of stigma is on the lips of contemporary um, uh, practitioners and researchers in the area of, 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 of racialized health disparities. And, um, you know, uh, uh, well, well, actually on, on the topic of mental health and, uh, mental health treatment and, and on a whole, the question of stigma and the, the Lafar clinic being housed in a church signaled to community members, mm-hmm. um, that it was embraced and that they wouldn't, be toyed with or messed with or that their, that their lives and their lives and minds would be taken seriously. And so Wortham, um, brought a wealth of experience, right? Prior experience, um, speaking with and relating to patients of all walks of life, including African American patients. Um, and, but he more, moreover brought, uh, with him, uh, an earnest disposition to say, you know, um, I take your life seriously. I take your mind seriously. The protocols for treatment um, and directives um, to the staff. And, and in some ways, you uh, you capture that in that one page uh, sheet to some, you know, the wind mm-hmm. like of, of the orientation of the clinic that, um, you know, I have. I wish you had a visual to correspond to. Because I, I, I have with me, I, um, I did an oral history with, um, uh, with Shelton Hill Bishop's daughter, uh, um, Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop Davis Trussell, who was uh, uh, going to Columbia Medical School at the time of the Lafar Clinic mm-hmm. and actually joined, you know, volunteered on the staff and, you know, subsequently became a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and actually became the first head of the Department of Psychiatry at Harlem Hospital, which didn't have a Department of Psychiatry until 1962, by the way. Um, and, and during my oral history, uh, she had some memorabilia um, and she um, graciously gave me one of the brochures. She had a, a, mm. a little batch of brochures and, um, you know, it, it, it tells the hours of the clinic. And I just, to lead into your, you know, kind of specific questions, right? It says, the Lafar Clinic is designed to provide expert psychotherapy for those who need it and cannot get it. Its services are available to any child or adult with, with or without referral from any public or private agency. A nominal fee of 25 cents, 50 cents for court testimony is charged for those who can afford it. Uh, and lastly, I just want to share this last point is on the flip side. It says the Lafar Clinic is a clinic for the treatment of all kinds of nervous and mental disorders and behavior difficulties of adults and children. Its emphasis is not on testing and retesting, but on practical, intensive, and if necessary, prolonged psychotherapy. 
The diagnostic and psychotherapeutic methods employed are in accordance with the highest modern scientific standards. I, 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 I appreciate you bearing with me when I uh, read a few port, you know, a few things here and there because I know that's not the most conversational thing to do, but I just wanted to uh, oh, uh, reference that. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so, in terms of uh, both the the uh, orientation that Wortham brought and the kind of the specific protocols for intake and um, and and offering. Uh, uh, a, a form of social psychotherapy that paid attention, uh, paid very close attention uh, to the patient's place in the social order of things, so to speak, that didn't, uh, which, which contrasted, and it was, this was an earlier question you had, kind of contrasted with forms of orthodox uh, uh, American psycho, psycho forms of psychoanalysis and, uh, that emphasized the family unit. Right. Um, not necessarily to the exclusion of, of culture or society. In fact, there was a, there was a school of thought coming from out of like a, a neo Freudianism, people like Karen Horney, uh, and, and, and Harry Stack Sullivan, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Harry Stack Sullivan. And, terms of the culture and personality school. Right, right. Um, uh, but um, the explicit reference and, uh, and engagement with um, the, the context of, of racialization of, of, I mean, if you think about something like, like paranoia, right? If you think of a, an example like such as paranoia, like there's this great interview in 1960, shortly before um, Richard Wright dies, uh, with a fr- with a French journalist, and he's talking. Uh, they ask him about his involvement in psychology, psychiatry, and uh, I don't remember if they ask specifically about the Lafarge Clinic, but they ask about, and he says, "Well, you know," <clears throat> he gives this uh, anecdote or or scenario of of uh, a, a, a white patient and a black patient waiting to go into a psych into uh, uh, see the psychiatrist and uh, the, the white patient refers to being, uh, you know, thinking that people are following him uh, when he goes into uh, a, you know, a department store, he's followed by clerks. When he, the police uh, uh, pay attention to his every move uh, when he goes to get, when he goes into um, a diner, he believes that he's being, uh, poisoned with salt or something like, you know, just, and, and the doctor says, well, you know, you're, you're paranoid and you're, you're showing signs of, you know, this, uh, you know, of, of, of perhaps paranoid schizophrenia, you're, you're fantasizing. And, the, and an African-American patient comes in and, and, uh, and describes the same uh, experiences. And the, the doctor says the same, very same thing to him. It's not taking it, right uses that as to say, you know, what is normal on a normal experience for an African American person in 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 modern American society uh, is is diagnosed in the very same format as um, as a white patient because this, the, the 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 particularity of that social experience is not taken into consideration. And while that's an anecdote and a portrait, I think in a lot of ways, 
um, right is uh, in some ways distilling um, some of the unique uh, orientations um, of of the Lafarge Clinic. I've, mm-hmm. I know I've spoken far too long on that, but um, and I, I'm sure we need to wrap up soon. Yeah, but, well, um, to wrap things it's up on just the subject been, of so, yeah. Uh, I think that you know <laughs> what's interesting is that Wright does kind of recede into the background pretty quickly yes. into camps for Paris. Yes. So I want to I want to hear just you know for our listeners the kind of the fate of Wright and his involvement in the clinic, then uh, the fate of Wortham, as you were talking about, who went on to write yes. uh, the Seduction yes. of the Innocent, and is now known as a comic book crusader, and then yeah. the eventual fate of the clinic and how that shut down. Yes. So to sort of yes. tie the story uh, together. Yeah, together. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> redirecting me there. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, Richard Wright um, uh, expatriates. Uh, he leaves. He quits the United States and moves to uh, France in 19... 19- to live in Paris in 1947. And he still remains on the, uh, the, the board of directors of, of the, uh, Lafarge clinic and, and makes, um, uh, writes, uh, writes things here and there for fundraising and for, um, uh, and, and, um, to publicize the, the work of the clinic, but on a, to be very straightforward, he he uh, doesn't um, uh, participate in the day to day operations of the clinic much after really getting the clinic off the ground. And I, you know, that's something I wrestled with in the narrative, right? Of uh, in in the sense of you know he uh, he's this formative, like invaluable figure in the establishment and uh, initial um, launch of the clinic. Um, but then again, largely recedes. Um, but uh, his um, his contributions, I I argue, really warranted his place within the narrative of of the clinic. He becomes much more of a a kind of international citizen. There's no doubt about it. So that his while his interests, of course, remain. Um, uh, 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 diagnosing and explaining the workings of race in the United States, he turns his attention attention very much to the the kind of the question of global um, uh, colonialism and anti colonialism of, of of the context of 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 questions around um, uh, war and uh, and 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 well, not to be too corny, but war and peace of, of staving off future, future world wars. And, um, and, and his fiction varies between, um, kind of wrestling with, uh, forms of existentialism, but also he later does return back to, um, a very rooted African American narratives. And as my dissertation advisor, uh, Jim Campbell shows in his book, Middle Passages, African-American Journeys to Africa. He actually shows very interestingly how, how Wright retained his orientations in, uh, in, in the Chicago school and Freudian psychoanalysis as he encounters the rest of the world. And famously in, in his book, Black Power, uh, which is kind of the first Annunciation of that phrase, 
he writes this book about Ghana uh, in the midst of 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 Nkrumah's ascendancy and anti-colonial, decolonial efforts. And um, his descriptions of the relationship between um, uh, African colonial life and uh, modern Europe, the modern European westernization, he distills his descriptions of this antagonism or encounter through the very orientations that actually um, were expressed and, and, and actually I, I argue like, you know, led into his involvement with um, the Lafar clinic. And so, yes, his, he does recede from the narrative, but um, I, I, there are a few uh, later encounters that I actually don't write about, but I might take up in, in some subsequent work in, in some interesting ways, but I'm going to bracket that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wortham comes to be um, a kind of flashpoint uh, for um, the question of the relationship between mass media in the form of crime comic books and the question of juvenile delinquency and, and not just juvenile delinquency, but violence. It centers on the question of violence. What sources contribute to young people's enacting of, of violence, uh, either to oneself or to others. And, and at the same time, at the same time that Wortham is encountering, uh, and observing the role of violent crime comic books in the lives of young children that he's encountering at very famously at the Lafar clinic and at his work as, as the, um, at the, uh, uh, psychiatric clinic at, uh, Queens General Hospital. Um, at the very same time that he's trying to assess and make sense of the role of these crime comic books, he's also being asked to participate in, um, the, uh, the scientific testimony, uh, in the, two Delaware de- school desegregation cases that were um, uh, uh, later that were bundled uh, as companion cases with Brown v. Board of Education. And, um, and for the first time um, in no other cases uh, in the four other cases besides Brown v-, v-, v. Board, in no other cases were both white and black children uh, examined in a clinical setting. Um, uh, you know, the, the testimony largely was largely focused on the, uh, pernicious effects of segregation on the psyches of black children. But, um, Wortham insisted that the, uh, NAACP legal defense and education fund, uh, lawyers, Jack Greenberg and Thurgood Marshall, that they, um, that they bring both white and black children to the Lafar clinic. And they did on five occasions brought black group of black and white children to be examined. And what, uh, and they, and he testifies in the Delaware case and actually sways the judge. It's the only case of the five cases that went into Brown v. Board of Education. It's the only case in which the, uh, the plaintiffs won in which 
the plaintiffs, those suing for uh, desegregation, won. But he couldn't. Uh, but the the judge couldn't uh, strike down desegregation because it was a, it, because of precedent that um, it had to be decided by the Supreme Court. And what what links both the um, seduction of the innocent and the school desegregation testimony is Wortham's um, concern uh, of framing of both issues in terms of, of a threat to public health. He, from the, 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 the linchpin between his work in seduction of the innocent and the school desegregation is the notion of identifying and eradicating sources of of threat to the to the emotional and mental health of of children, mm. and he argues on the one case that these violent crime comics on the other state sanctioned uh, state sanctioned segregation and 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 anti black racism, and one of the kind of largely overlooked components of seduction of innocent is that there's a there's a um, there's a case that Wortham makes about the relationship between um uh represent of 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 racist representation and uh and violence and the kind of the opening of permission to be violent towards um the capital o other right yeah and so ultimately um ultimately uh wortham um has tremendous sway he he has tremendous sway um but then just almost as immediately as he has sway he is um kind of written out of the narrative of the uh of the brown v board of education social science contribution um but and then but but very much is written into the uh the the kind of as the arch villain um and for some for some reasons right, and I would argue for some reasons wrong, uh, uh, written as the arch uh, kind of arch uh, uh, the archetype for um, uh, 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 a villainous censor. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then so, it's, yeah. You know, to add insult to injury, almost it seems like his efforts with the Lafarge Clinic and the way in which they're enacted uh, basically exempt the clinic itself from support in legislature that gets passed to fund uh, similar kinds of institutions. So absolutely. it's sort of like that, that becomes the nail in the coffin for the clinic, really. In absolutely. The in the very same year, 1954, the, it's a, that's, it's a, a, that's a pivotal year, right? It's, it's, it's a good year on one, right? It's the Brown v. Board of Education in May, May of 1954. But, you know, and Seduction of the Innocent is, published in 1954 but in new york state the community mental health services act uh uh seems to be this auspicious occasion and opportunity for the lafar clinic to get the resources it has dreamed about since its inception and um they're denied they're denied uh through uh, through several applications for funding uh they're they're denied and it's because i mean frankly um uh, Wortham had um, Wortham was a prickly figure, mm-hmm. where he was he he often ostracized those who could be um, most possibly in his corner, because yeah. 
you know, I think the term uh, idea fix was made for him, right? The idea that his way, he had an idea and it had to be done exactly his way. And, and he wouldn't, you know, truck or traffic in any watered down versions of, 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 of well, of anything, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so um, in 1954, at this, you know, the uh, auspicious enactment of the Community Mental Health Services Act, uh, the clinic itself doesn't get funding. And by, you know, it, it, it hangs on and, and, and offers services for uh, four more years. And I always say when I'm talking about the clinic, you know, um, that, you know, 12 years, you know, 12 years is a long time for a do-it-yourself institution mm-hmm. of grassroots institution building. 12 years of, of, of an all-volunteer staff operating every Tuesday and Friday evening. That's a long time. It, you know, you look at, the, at the, you look at it on a timeline and it's a blip, but 12 years of week in and week out offering patient of, of, of thousands of patients um, recurring and, and humane and, and, and democratized psychotherapy when they didn't have access in any other institution of its type. Um, that's, uh, that's something to commend the significance of this clinic. And more, moreover, I would argue that, you know, um, uh, that, that the, the, uh, the model of the clinic, maybe not all of its elements would come to later serve as a, a kind of, uh, the model would, would, would in some ways be picked up, um, uh, in a later, in a later iteration, and that being the, the community mental health movement of the 1960s. And in fact, I'm not going to say that there's this direct correlation because there isn't, but some of the figures, including people that I, uh, great, uh, octogenarians that I interviewed who were staff members, including, uh, 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 Father Bishop's daughter, Doctor Doctor Bishop Davis Chausel, and 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 the figure of uh, someone with one of the greatest names I've ever encountered is Doctor June Jackson Christmas. Doctor June Jackson Christmas was a uh, a, a medical student, and then late, uh, like an and an intern at Queens General Hospital, and a student, uh, you know, uh, 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 supervised by Doctor Wortham. She later becomes. The, in the 1970s, the New York City Commissioner of Public Health. And so she cut her teeth, so to speak, uh, at the Lafar Clinic in terms of um, her, her approach to um, offering, uh, you know, in, in terms of public health and of, 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 a, of a humane practice of, of, of psychiatry. And so there's a, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, a, there's an, a, an individual and an, uh, uh, you know, there's an individual legacy, but there's a, you know, I think in, um, in, in some ways there's a, um, uh, a kind of zeit, no, I don't know zeit guy, but like a, just a spiritual, uh, legacy that gets picked up, um, uh, later on. And, and, and in, in a lot of ways for me, the exciting point about recapturing this history in some ways, I mean, well, the story has been told in, in portions by other um, uh, excellent scholars, you know, this is the first kind of, this is the first comprehensive study of the Lafar clinic uh, in, in under the strain of color. Um, it, 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 it offers to 
um, contemporary scholars and practitioners um, a model. It says, hey, there was this model of, of, of intervention um, uh, that, that foregrounded um, the, uh, the social context and social experience of, of, of forms of oppression, straight up oppression, not to dance away from a term that people don't always use, but oppress, oppressive life circumstances um, structured upon race and um, uh, labor inequality, um, that there was this model that existed uh, back in the day, but um, this story has resonated because, you know, a lot of um, contemporary practitioners are wrestling with questions uh, around, um, you know, questions around cultural competency, around um, what, 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 what the psychiatrist and, 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 and scholar Jonathan Metzl refers to as structural competency. You know, these are, these are concerns and questions that are on the lips and minds of, 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 uh, of contemporary um, uh, uh, medical practitioners and social workers and, and others. So, um, you know, having this uh, history serve as an al- alternate model for intervention, you know, um, kind of beyond the um, primarily biophysical approach. I'm not kind of opening up a can of worms with that, but, but if that's one thing that this book kind of gestures to, or is to, is to um, kind of juxtapose uh, a, a, an earlier model of, of, so, of, of social psychiatry uh, kind of not over and against, but side by side with the kind of, um, well, for lack of a better word, uh, hegemonic, biophysical, biomedical um, approach to uh, psychiatry that is, um, um, that is, uh, that reigns right now. There's another model that I think can be usefully juxtaposed. Um, yeah, yeah. So well, thank um, you for that. That was a very yeah, nice uh, thank suggestion you. of the potential scope of influence of the book. And on that note, I was wondering if you know, we're kind of running out of time, but I yeah. was hoping you could briefly summarize uh, what your current project is and how oh, it speaks to or yeah. many of these issues you've discussed. Abs- thank you, thank you for that question because you know it's something, and it was connected to uh, a, 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 another question on my mind. It's sort of like you know what what. Um, what is it I didn't do in this book that I would have loved to do or, or what, you know, and it really does connect. I'm currently beginning work on my second, uh, um, uh, single authored, uh, book. And that's called, um, through the glass darkly race and madness in modern America. And it's a much more broad scope text that, uh, looks in a comparative and relational uh, way at racial the, the intersections of racialization and uh, and mental health mental illness in within various uh, populations African American uh, indigenous and, and native peoples um, uh, uh, Latinos in the Southwest Latin and Latinos in in uh, in the Northeast as well, and and and, uh, and and other other populations. Um, and looks at this larger question of what is the relationship, it just poses the basic question of what's the relationship between uh, uh, 
questions of, of racialization and, and, and mental health and mental illness, both at a kind of, um, uh, discursive construction of science level and also lived experience level, as well as, and this is where it's interdisciplinary, looks at questions of kind of representation of like the image and idea of madness and to what degree the objects of research and institutionalization, whatever, in whatever way, the objects, those populations, to what degree have they maneuvered or discerned or offered up alternate models and meanings of madness? And so one of the things that I've, I've always wished I, in, in retrospect, like kind of wish I could have done a little bit, well, if I had had access in some ways to how um, African-Americans themselves in Harlem or even coming from what, whichever traditions or maybe even like folk traditions, how they themselves saw the meanings of madness, meanings of mental disorder, and how they interpreted um, modern uh, psychiatric practices in the context of LaFarge Clinic's operation. Of course, I pay close attention to the patient files, but as we know, as sources, they are distilled through the pen of the recorder who is not without his or her own uh, interpretive biases. So uh, not to say that I could get direct, you know, uh, access to, you know, how did people think about, you know, because, you know, all sources are mediated to some extent, but at least um, one of the things I'm aiming that, that, and kind of picking up where uh, uh, I wasn't able to go as far as I would have liked, picking up that and 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 enacting in my contemporary research uh, an attention and attunement to uh, being attuned to how um, the communities who are and populations who are the uh, targets or objects of research and institutionalization, how they themselves respond to or offer up alternate um, uh, visions or versions of, of, of mental illness or mental health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, that sounds very exciting and uh, look forward to maybe in a few years time hearing about that work. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'll get it to your, I'll get it to your desk very soon. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, Gabriel, thanks so much for your time and for uh, this wonderful discussion. And uh, to our listeners, absolutely uh, check out uh, Gabriel's book. Uh, It's available through Cornell University Press. Thanks so much for listening. This has been New Books in Medicine.